Well, one of the things you can say about Washington, D.C. these days is that it is not a boring place. It's been another busy week, to say the least. The war of words between Kim Jong-un and Trump continues. The Republicans released a draft of their tax reform, and believe me, we're going to do a podcast on that later. The slow response from the Trump administration to the devastation in Puerto Rico from Hurricane Maria was widely criticized, as still 95% of people in Puerto Rico did not have electricity and half of residents did not have any clean drinking water. Now, Trump is going down to Puerto Rico next Tuesday, two weeks after the hurricane hit, and in general, he just hasn't shown the same level of concern for the citizens of Puerto Rico as he did for those in Texas uh, or Florida when they were dealing with the aftermath of their hurricanes. And in the shadow of all this, somehow Trump found time to lash out at NFL players who kneel during the playing of the national anthem, saying that, quote, actually, you know what, I I don't swear on this podcast, so I'll let the president of the United States speak for himself. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! from Trump's words was immediate. He was charged not only with racism toward NFL players, but he ignored the fact that the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States guarantees the right to free speech and to peacefully protest. And let me read from it for a few seconds here. Quote, there shall be no law abridging the freedom of speech or the right of the people to peacefully assemble, close quote. And Trump thought that he would gain a lot of support for his point of view on the NFL players' protests. You know, some owner's going to do that. He's going to say, that guy that disrespects our flag, he's fired. And that owner, they don't know it. They don't know it. They're friends of mine, many of them. They don't know. They'll be the most popular person for a week. They'll be the most popular person in this country because that's a total disrespect of our heritage. That's a total disrespect of everything that we stand for, okay? Everything that we stand for. And I know we have freedoms and we have freedom of choice and many, many different freedoms, but you know what? It's still totally disrespectful. And you know, when the NFL ratings are down massively, massively, The NFL ratings are down massively. Now, the number one reason happens to be that they like watching what's happening on, you know, with yours, Kerry. They like what's happening. But it really didn't turn out that way. There was widespread condemnation for what he said, even from sports 
superstars like LeBron James, three-time NBA championship winner, two-time Olympic gold winner, who wasn't afraid to say what he thinks about Trump. So my, and my first initial response was, you, you bum. You, you, I can't, first of all, you, you, you don't understand the magnitude and you don't understand, he doesn't understand the power that he has for being the leader of this beautiful country. He doesn't understand how many kids, no matter the race, look up to, look up to the president of the United States for, for guidance, for leadership, for, for words of encouragement. He doesn't understand that. And that's what makes me more, that's what makes me more sick than anything that we have someone as, this is the most, this is the number one position in the world. Do you guys agree? Being the president of the United States is the most powerful position in the world. I, I don't know of another one. And if, if you can find one, let me know. It's the most powerful position in the world. And we are at a time where the most powerful position in the world has an opportunity to bring us closer together as a people and inspire the youth and put the youth at ease on saying that it is okay for me to walk down the street and not be judged because of the color of my skin or because of my race. And he has no recollection of that. And he doesn't even care. Maybe he, maybe he does, but he doesn't care. So do I take away, do I say, uh, do I just say, take away you bum off my, no, because if I did, I would have deleted my tweet. And while all this was going on, Republicans in the Senate came up with another attempt to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. And this time, they called it the Graham-Cassidy Bill, named after its two co-sponsors, Lindsey Graham, Republican Senator of South Carolina, and Bill Cassidy, Republican Senator of Louisiana. Now, the Republicans tried to rush the process to get the Graham-Cassidy Bill passed because, under the rules of budget reconciliation, which ends at the end of September, they only need a simple majority vote in Senate. 51 votes versus the normal majority that is needed of 60 votes. And remember that the Republicans have a slim majority in the Senate with 52 of 100 seats, so they can't afford to lose more than two Republican votes to pass a bill. So how did the Graham-Cassidy bill fare in the Senate? Well, here's the co-sponsor of the legislation, Senator Bill Cassidy. We don't have the votes. Okay. That's in speaking to the leadership, speaking to the president. I think Lindsey and he are on speed dial. Uh, uh, we've made the decision since we don't have the votes, we will postpone that vote. Okay. Am I disappointed? Absolutely. So pretty simple why the bill failed or actually technically why it never came to the floor of the Senate for a vote. Republicans need 50 votes with Vice President Pence being able to cast a tie-breaking vote to get them to a 51-vote majority, and they can't afford to lose more than two Republican votes along the way, and four Republican senators had come out and said there were no votes on Graham-Cassidy, so the math just wasn't working for them. So they folded their proverbial tents, and they went home. But what was wrong with the Graham-Cassidy bill. The Republicans hold the majority in the Senate. Why weren't they able to pass it? 
Senator Susan Collins from Maine laid it out very clearly. It was clear to me that the Graham-Cassidy bill was not the answer. It had three major flaws. First, it made sweeping and fundamental changes in the traditional Medicaid program. It would have changed the program in a, in a way that would have put health care at risk for some of our most vulnerable citizens, including disabled children and low-income seniors, by cutting a trillion dollars out of the program uh, from the years 2020 to 2036. So that was of great concern to me. Second, the bill clearly opened the door to weakening the protections for people with pre-existing conditions like asthma or, or cancer or diabetes or arthritis. It would require insurers to offer them insurance and to renew their insurance, but their rates could well be unaffordable. There was no definition in the bill of affordability. That troubled me greatly. In addition, the bill would have allowed states to curtail certain kinds of benefits under the block grant for the affordable health care. So mental health coverage and substance abuse treatment, for example, might well be dropped. And that was of great concern to me as well. If I could just quickly say my third reason, and I realize I went on long, but my third reason is the impact on coverage, the uh, tens of millions of Americans who would lose coverage, and the impact on premiums. I have no doubt, based on the analysis of insurers and health care providers and hospitals who have come together in a coalition, as well as think tanks, uh, that this bill would actually cause premiums in the individual markets to rise in some states. So where do Republicans go from here? In a bit of a face-saving mode, Lindsey Graham promised that his bill will live to fight another day. Where are we at? Uh, we're on path to pass Graham, Cassie, Heller, Johnson. It's not if, it's only a matter of when. I've talked to my colleagues. Everybody's very enthusiastic about the idea of taking money and power out of Washington, returning it to their states to give their constituents more say about their health care. There's universal agreement in our conference that Obamacare is failing, can't be repaired, is structurally flawed. But realistically, is that really going to happen? The Republicans have to move on to tax reform to prove to the American voter that they can actually pass a piece of legislation. Because remember that in nine months, Trump has yet to get one piece of legislation signed into law. And we've already seen in some of the preliminary data that Republicans have released on their tax reform proposal that it's going to be controversial. So do they also want to drag repealing and replacing Obamacare into the tough road ahead on getting tax reform to the president's desk for signature? While, on the other hand, they promised voters that they would repeal and replace Obamacare. They talked about it for seven years while Obama was president. Trump said he'd do it day one 
in the Oval Office. It was one of the key pillars of their election strategy. And it's, to say the least, it's a vulnerability of theirs heading into the 2018 midterm elections, which, believe it or not, they're only a little over a year away. So Republicans have some decisions to make, and we'll watch those decisions closely. But despite Senator Graham's promise to keep plugging away on repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, where do we go on health care from here? Obamacare is the law of the land. Both sides of the aisle recognize that it needs some serious work on it to keep it viable, and the Democrats have started to introduce a single-payer program nicknamed Medicare for All. It has 16 co-sponsors, so whether or not it makes its way through the legislative process has yet to be determined, but it still begins a serious conversation about the structure of health care in the United States. In our last podcast, we began a series to look at single-payer health care in other industrialized nations around the world. Why is it that the United States is the only major country on earth without health care for all its citizens? Can we learn something from other countries on how they structure their health care systems to serve the medical needs of their citizens? Do the systems work? Do they not work? And how do they compare to the U.S.? We started the conversation in the last podcast by looking at England and their national health service. And a few things stood out in that conversation about the English healthcare system. The first was that every citizen in England has health insurance through the government. The second is that health insurance is funded by a tax that each citizen pays into the system. And that system is called the National Health Service, which provides health care at the point of need, free of charge. There's no cost to see a doctor, no cost to see a specialist, and no cost to be hospitalized because you've already paid into the system through your taxes. And the last thing we learned was that although no system is perfect, the NHS in England works well, serving the health care needs of British citizens and receives overwhelming support from the British. So let's continue the conversation about healthcare systems around the world by taking a look at Germany and their healthcare system. I gave my friend Stefan a call to get some insights into healthcare in Germany. Stefan Weikant lives in Berlin. He's a freelance consultant currently working with Lead Sports Accelerator, which is an effort aimed at finding and supporting innovative early stage sports startups from around the world. Stefan is single. He has no kids. Before we start our conversation with Stefan, let's take a quick look at the German healthcare system. It's actually a fascinating system because it's the world's oldest national social health insurance system. Its earliest form was in the Middle Ages when Germany had a guild system. The guild members realized that they needed some kind of a common fund that they would pay into and the fund would support guild members when they became sick or unable to work. In the late 1800s, the modern system started to take shape under Otto von Bismarck, who was in many ways responsible for forming the basis of the modern German state. The system was built on and still supports three basic principles. Number one, 
the government provides health care to all citizens. Number two, this is done with the smallest political influence possible. And number three, the government is responsible for setting standards and procedures for care by working directly with groups of health care professionals. If you're a German citizen, you have to have health care. It's mandatory. About 92% of Germans have health care through the state. The remaining 8% or so choose to have private health insurance, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But let's hear from Stefan about his experience of the German health care system. Yeah, I live in Berlin. I moved here um, uh, three years ago, and I'm actually from Bavaria in the, in the north of Bavaria, so um, just, I guess, um, right in the middle of Germany. I'm from Würzburg, and I moved there, as I said, um, three years ago. We continued by talking about the, the basics of the German healthcare system, the structure, how it's set up, and what it's like to use the system as a German citizen. My understanding is the German healthcare system is is if you're a German citizen or you work in Germany, it is compulsory that you have health insurance. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's a mandatory. You you um you have to do it. Um, it's it's you have no choice. You can you can can uh, there are two possibilities, and most of the people here in Germany also um um. They um, don't change their health insurance very much, and you have to have one. It's not, um, the legal uh, the law um, does not allow um, any citizen of Germany to have no health insurance. Okay, so you so as a German citizen, you have to have health insurance, and that yeah. he- that health insurance is paid for into what's called I don't know if I have the right uh, terminology here, but into a, a sickness fund. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, you can call it so. Um, each um, uh, citizen has to pay an amount, and it's um, now, I guess, 15% plus 1%, uh, maybe we'll talk about it later, um, of um, the um, total income uh, per month. So if you um, got um, 2000 per month, you have to pay 15% um, to this uh, kind of health insurance. Okay. And then that health insurance, then you pay into this pool and then, and it's, it, it, it's a, um, sliding scale, right? Based on your income. Does that 15%? Yep. yep. Okay. So if you make more money, you have to pay more than 15%. That's right. And so then as a German citizen, you, you pay a certain percent of your income into this sickness fund, this government sickness fund. And yep. then, and then if you, uh, have to go to the doctor or a specialist or the hospital or whatever that's paid for entirely how does that work yeah it's paid for entirely so if you feel sick you go to a doctor um most often it's your uh, personal doctor you you know um a long time and if you have to go to a specialist it's also paid for and you but you have to go first to your to your um, doctor you know and then he um, um hand you to the specialist Okay. And then, um, so in the United States, that's called a primary care physician. You, you, you go to your primary care physician and, and you get taken care of what you need to get taken care of. And if they can't take care of it, or if there's something that a specialist needs to see, they, um, uh, give you a, um, referral 
to a specialist. Yeah. Is, does it work the same in Germany? Yeah, it's, it's pretty the same. I would say it's, it's quite similar. Okay. And then um, when you go see your prime, what is, your, what is the primary care physician called? What's the name of that in German? Um, in German, it's, um, um, what is it called? Um, Hausarzt. So it's um, the um, doctor of your house, Hausarzt. Um, it's, yeah, you're the, it's the first person you go to when you're sick. Okay. In each cut. Uh-huh. And then, and if you, let's say it's a routine thing, you have a, something going on that's not serious. How, how do you call and make an appointment? How long does it take to get an appointment? How does that sort of work? Um, so normally if you have the governmental health insurance, um, you um, call them and you say, hey, Dr. Thomas, um, um, my... Um, my feet are hurting, um, can I come by? And he says, yeah, come by. Um, if it's something urgent, um, come by now. If um, it's something, um, yeah, you have a long time ago. Um, so um, he says, yeah, it would be perfect on Monday next week. Um, and then you go uh, to your doctor and you have to wait. It depends. Um, I, I'm at the experience that you have to wait one hour to two hours Um Mondays are the worst because um, of the weekend. I don't know why it is exactly. Um, yeah, but that, that's a normal time. One, uh, we have to wait uh, one hour to to get you, you um, to see your doctor. To see your doctor. So it doesn't take it. It doesn't under sort of normal circumstances. It doesn't sound like it takes that long to get an appointment. It is okay in bigger cities like Berlin. You, it, um, it's a little bit harder to find a, a doctor who can um, um, solve uh, some urgent problems. But normally, yeah, it's no problem actually. Okay, and then if you um, if you uh, then go to the doctor and and there's something that you need a specialist for, uh, uh, as you said, uh, something wrong with your feet or something like that. They um, give you a referral to a specialist, yes? Yeah, and they, give, um, they give me a referral to the specialist, and then um, uh, if um, my, my feet has to, to um, yeah, get a special uh, thing, like x-rays or something like that, then he, uh, the, the um, house doctor can do it, and so he gives me a referral. Okay, and, and how long does it usually take to... In I don't know if you have personal experience or family experience to get uh, um, an appointment with a specialist. Is that a long wait or a short wait? Mm, I guess uh, you have to wait a little longer. It also depends on the urgency. But um, yeah, my I guess my girlfriend uh, can you uh, tell you a lot more. Um, she um, need um, a special treatment for her shoulder. And it takes um, sometimes two weeks to get a, a appointment but, um, to the specialist to go to the specialist, and yeah, sometimes four weeks. It it takes a while. But but if but if it's more urgent, like let's say you had a cardiac condition or uh, something like that, would it be pretty quick to get a specialist appointment? Yeah, it, it that's uh, pretty quick actually, and that's a good thing. But um, most often um, the specialist is um, in a big hospital. So they used to have a lot of people in a short time, um, specialists with um, um, smaller um, um, uh, yeah, places are, are harder to get. So um, most often um, you will send directly to the hospital if it's urgent. 
Okay. And, and, ha- and when you go see your primary care physician or, or a specialist, do you have to pay anything for those appointments? Um, it depends. Um, if you, um, so, um, the normal way is no, you have, uh, you have not to, um, if you go to a dentist, you have to pay for, let's say you have a professional, um, t- a tooth cleaning. Um, and if you are um, on a private insurance, you always have to pay, um, stuff, um, and, um, the payment will, um, you, you will be paid afterwards. Um, I guess it's a month. But if you um, are on the governmental way, um, you have to pay nothing. Okay. And then if you're for the government health insurance, if then you need to be hospitalized for a particular reason, Mm -hmm. either for an illness or you've been in an accident or whatever the case may be, when you go in the hospital, how does that work? Do you have to pay? Are the costs covered? How does that work? Um, it's, if, if you, um, um, I had the case, um, uh, last year that, um, had, a, um, um, an accident and I had to go to the hospital and I had to stay a week and, um, my health insurance, uh, t- took the most of it, but, um, I had to pay, um, it's, it's like, uh, paying in a um, hotel uh, for your attendance at the hospital, uh, at the hospital, I guess it was, um, round about, hmm, for one week, 150 bucks for food, for the bed, and for the cleaning and stuff like that. So um, that it's, it's a small percentage, um, and it depends um, on how long you stay. So, so in your experience, your, your week-long stay in the hospital cost you personally about $150? Yeah, roundabout. Okay. That's true. Okay. So the basics of the German healthcare system, according to Stefan, are that all citizens have health care. It's paid for through taxes, which are based on your income. Regular doctor visits are free. Specialist visits are free. Hospital stays are free, although you have to pay essentially what amounts to a room and a board charge, which in Stefan's personal experience was about $150 for a week in the hospital. Wait times for doctors seem reasonable. They're based on the urgency of your need you need a referral to see a specialist. And this sounds pretty much like many people's experience in the United States with one big difference. In the U.S., you need health insurance to have the costs of medical care covered. In Germany, it's paid for through the government. But what about prescriptions in Germany? How do they work? How are they paid for? I asked Stefan. And and how do, um? let's say you go to the doctor and they have to prescribe something, some medicine. Um, how, how does, how does, how do prescriptions work in Germany? Mm, you, um, if you go to the doctor and, um, he found out that you need some medicine, um, most of the medicine is, um, is, uh, supported by the, by the, um, health insurance. So maybe let's say aspirin or something for the for the um, head pain um, um, you can go uh, to the doctor and he um, um, give you a recipe and then you um, it's, it's cheaper I guess it's um, um, it's narrowed down to five euros um, but it depends if, if it's a real special stuff it's um, fully taken care of um, but um, so um, easy easy stuff like the painkillers for that for your headache or something um, there's a a small amount of money you have to have to pay. 
So, it, so if you get a prescription from the doctor, you take it into a pharmacy, um, and you have to normally pay, depending upon the medication, but you normally have to pay about five euro for it. Yeah, yeah, for the smaller things. If it's really special, so um, um, a special case for whatever, um, the head of insurance uh, jumps in and takes all of it. About 92% of Germans participate and are covered under the state health care system. About 8% choose to have private health insurance. I asked Stefan how this private insurance works and why a German citizen would choose to have private insurance over the government insurance. So there's the, the government-run um, insurance, which is obligatory, the sickness fund, and then there's private insurance. So how, a couple questions about private insurance. How does it work? And, and why would you get private insurance? What is that? What's the advantage to having private insurance? Okay, so um, it's uh, a thing I um, uh, um, yeah, struggle a couple months um, right now because I am allowed to because I'm self-employed as a freelancer. I can choose. Um, the normal employed people, they can't choose even uh, um, until they get to the 65,000 euros uh, per year. Then they can decide, uh, but normally you, you can't. Um, and uh, private insurance works a little little different because um, um, I told you about the thing that um, in the governmental insurance, um, you uh, the amount of payment is, um, is calculated by um, your income. Um, and the private insurance is working like that. Um, it's calculated on your age. So if you're young, uh, I'm 28, I have to pay, mm, I guess, 280 to 300 per month. Um, and if I grow older and I'm 50, I have to pay a lot more. So because um, the risk is higher, um, you go off more often to the doctor and stuff like that. So that's right. way in a, um, private insurance. Right. That makes sense. But why Why would you even have private insurance if, if as a German citizen, you're covered by the German healthcare system, why would you choose to have private insurance? What's the advantage? That's the amount of money I, I own uh, or I get now from my from my self-employed job. Um, I had to pay, uh, I guess, uh, around 800 euros, and now I have to pay 280 euros. So it's a big difference if you if you calculate it. Um, and the thing is, um, and that's a I guess uh, it is a bad thing, actually, that um, a, pr um, a person who is um, insured by private uh, insurance, um, the time of waiting, maybe, is um, a lot shorter. So if you make an appointment to, uh, with, a, with a doctor, um, you don't have to wait an hour. You can most often, it's it's possible that you, uh, you, that you uh, get access to the doctor in, I guess, five to ten minutes. Because um, the um, doctors and, and um, the hospitals get the money from you and direct at the day you visit your doctor um, and not um, month, um, a couple months later for, from the governmental insurance. So you pay them directly and you have to take um, care of your own, um, of your own um, invoices and um, you send them to the private insurance and then you get back your money. So, okay. um, yeah, okay. that's the way. So, so the advantage to, if I understand you correctly, the advantage mm -hmm. to private health care insurance is that it gets you 
um, to see a doctor faster. The wait times are not as long. That's that's uh, that's possible, and um, you can choose. Um, most of the people in Germany like to like to choose um, the the um, yeah the package. What you get from 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 your private insurance, you can um, insure uh, get um, a lot of um, different kind of um, yeah types of your insurance. You can um, uh, adjust it uh, on your personal needs. Um, if you don't need a thing, it's cheaper. If you need a special thing, you can also do it. It's um, it's uh, like um, to to um, make the best out of it. And the fact that you um, you got a faster faster treatment. Um, it's also if your if your son um, or your daughter um, has to um, has to go to the doctor, it's also faster then. So it is it is um, kind of. Um, yeah, more more luxury, I guess a little. So it it um, it gives you just better and quicker access to physicians and to care. I guess is the sort of simplest way to say it. Yeah, I would say that that's correct. Okay. So private health insurance in Germany works much like it does in the U.S. There are different providers. There are different plans to choose from, all with different rates. And there's the usual confusion associated with private health insurance and choosing and getting the plan that's right for you. It can be frustrating sometimes. What you pay is based not only on the plan you choose, but on demographic factors such as your age and your gender. Private health insurance can be less expensive in some cases than the government insurance. It gets you faster care because the doctors get paid for their services immediately versus having to wait for reimbursement from the government. You're eligible for private health insurance if you're self-employed or if you earn over 65,000 euro a year, which is about 77,000 US dollars. So those are some of the basics of what the German healthcare system is and how it works. And I want to thank Stefan for taking the time to explain the system from a German citizen's point of view. But how does the German healthcare system compare to the U.S. system on a cost standpoint? In Germany, percentage of GDP spent on healthcare is 10.4%. In the U.S., it's 16%, although recent data suggests that it has risen closer to 18% in the United States. Healthcare spending per capita in Germany is $3,500. In the U.S., it's more than double that at $7,300. The annual health care spending growth rate in Germany is 1.7%. In the U.S., it's double that at 3.4%. Germans spend less on out-of-pocket expenses and on prescriptions, and yet health outcomes are about the same in both countries, and Germany has more doctors per thousand people at 3.5 versus 2.4 in the U.S., now, as I said in the last podcast, the United States healthcare system has some of the best doctors, the best treatment facilities, the best research, and the best drug development in the world. But the truth is, it doesn't seem to produce better results on key measures than either England or Germany. And it's much less efficient because it's a for-profit system run by publicly held companies who have the fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to maximize their profits. Now, of course, there's one huge factor 
that makes an apples-to-apples -apples comparison between the U.S. and between Germany and England impossible. They're all very different countries. The complexity of delivering health care in the U.S. is greater because of the geographic diversity of our population and the size of our population. There are 325 million people in the United States, 82 million in Germany and 65 million in the U.K., but it doesn't mean that it's not worth looking at other systems around the world while we're in a period of debating our own system and seeing if there are things we can learn about delivering quality health care to U.S. citizens in the most efficient manner possible. And there's something else. If you are listening to this podcast from the U.S., if you're a citizen, then you have a critical voice in all of this. Health care is being debated right now in Washington, D.C. There are committees in the Senate and in the House of Representatives crafting changes to our health care system. And that's a good thing. We need to continue to look at our government programs and to make them better. And our hope at D.C. Made Simple is that by understanding more about key issues such as health care, you can have a conversation with your elected officials. You can call your member of Congress, your senators. You can visit their local offices. You can go to a town hall. You can stand up and you can ask them what they plan to do with health care in the United States. And armed with knowledge, you can make your arguments stronger and have a greater say in the choices that are being made in our democracy. In next week's podcast, we'll head north and we'll visit Canada. Take a look at their healthcare system and see what we can find out. So thanks for listening and talk soon.